the 2nd of November on the module DD103 investigating the social world. We're on chapter 4 Mapping Home by Melissa Butcher and Andy Morris, page 134. Mapping Home. So if you're on the same module as me, please follow suit. It's a good way of uh, studying. Bear with me two seconds. Yeah, bear with me. This is why I'm studying every day. Reading, repeat, reading, repeat. It's sinking eventually. Anyway, page 134. Strategy. They begin to invest in homes for their families in North America, Europe and Australia. But also to continue to invest in business enterprises in Asia. There is flexibility in the family as a result of this mobility. With parents, predominantly fathers, often travelling while the family lived elsewhere. In this sense, citizenship and the idea of home that goes with it has mutated and become more flexible. In the activity 4, what do you think are the power geometries, as Massey has described them, involved in this movement of transnational professionals. In the discussion, remember the definition of power geometry. Power geometry is used to describe the way that power creates different spatial connections and movements for different groups of people. Importantly, it emphasises that while globalisation might seem like a universal phenomenon in which we are all part of the shrinking world, some groups have more power than others within these interconnections. For transnational professionals, it seems that they can move much more easily around the globe. For example, Melissa, co-author of this chapter, was born in Australia but has two passports, Australian and British, so does not have to worry about immigration in the UK or the EU. Trade agreement between countries sometimes enable the movement of people associated with business, but restrict the movement of other people such as the undocumented workers. Question is, inequality and justice are, re are reflected in this movement and legal regimes that govern it. Undocumented workers may have been forced to migrate due to a loss of livelihood that was beyond their control. Or that was actually created by models of economic organisation implemented by the country they are trying to migrate to. Mexican migration to the United States as a result of the North American Free Trade Agreement is one example of this power geometry. The idea that home is something fluid and flexible seems counter-intuitive <coughs> when observing the material objects and the practices De Certi talks about that mark out maps of home. And the real feelings of warmth when thinking about places to which we belong. So it is, it is important to note that in much of the research with migrants in general, home still matters. Landscape provide illustrations of the ways in which an idea or sense of home is important and the final section turns to these representations. In the summary, this section has explored how ideas about home can be contested by process of migration and the movement of people globally. People can maintain connections to more than one home. Home can also be remade or relocated, however, while home may seem like a flexible idea, 
For many people, it is still an important marker of identity and belonging. Seeing home represented spaces of home on page 136. The previous sections touched on the, on the idea that while home might sometimes be experienced in mobile or unsettled ways, place still matters. The landscape or the environment provides a setting where this sense of home is embedded. What might be called homeland, as the geographer Chuan, 2004, puts it. We can ex extrapolate home far beyond the directly experienceable house, neighbourhood and towns. To such large spaces as region and nation state, a whole country, even one of the continental size, can then become home or homeland. And homeland, even more than home, is a guarantor of security and mature. The idea of a whole country as home is something that is central to the meaning of nationhood. It is expressed through a range of uh, rituals and symbols, as you'll see in, in the next chapter. This section focuses on landscape and its connection in, of national identity. In the introduction of, it, of to this his, historical account, the making of the English landscape, Hoskins, 2013-1995, page 14, notes that the English landscape itself, to those who know how to read it or write, is the richest historical record we possess. This quote and Hoskins' pioneering work on landscape history more broadly describes a particular understanding of landscape that is deeply embedded in the concept of national identity, yet there is something more to Hoskins' statement than that. It is the idea that landscape as a spatial concept is something that can also be read like a text, painting or photograph. The distinction between landscape as something spatial and something textual has been historical blurred, especially since the 18th century. When the concept of landscape gained particular popularity in European literature and art, at this time it was increasingly fashionable among the British aristocracy to establish their growing colonial wealth and to have their land as well as their paintings as models or picturesque, while alluding to the wild and natural, the picturesque landscape was in fact governed by very particular rules and norms of the composition outlined by the figures such as William Gilpin, who saw his role as explained landscape by the rules. Of picturesque beauty, the Gilpin 2004, these ideas were heavily influenced by the work of a 17th century French painter, Claude de Rain, and later by the works of the 18th century English painters such as Gainsborough and Turner. As well as the fashionable country house, gardens, designs of Lancelot, Capability, Browns and others. Bearing this historical context in mind, and the slippage between landscape as a something spatial, and as text can be read, landscape can be thought as, um, as, of as both something seen and a way of seeing the world. Associated in, in particular with the visualisation of relationships between culture and nature. Wiley 2007, page 55, emphasised in original. However, this way of seeing, like geographical imagination, is not an unproblematic idea. It is a refined way of seeing, informed by aristocratic landowners, 
collectors of paintings and readers of literature at a time when around 50% of the English adult population was illiterate. Vincent, 1993. In other words, it is an idealised vision of English landscape that is selective in what and who is seen. As the art critic John Berger observed, sometimes the landscape seems to be less asserting for life of its inhabitants than a curtain behind which their struggles, achievements and accidents take place. Sitting in Cosgrove, 1984. It has subsequently been argued that this privileged view of landscape or gaze as often termed served to marginalise the poor non-white ethnic groups and women who were largely absent from representation of landscape at this time. Dorian Rose 2003 These kind of landscapes painting can reinforce ideas about who does and who does not belong in certain spaces. They contain the reef and reflect relations of power, disputes over the gentrification of the city via new and expensive apartments and the ways in which they can price local people out. People and contemporary example of this. The argument about representation take us back to the D. Certain 1984 and his idea of the tussle between the power of the officials to rend their landscape in a particular way and the everyday practices of people who use that space. It is apparent to landscape. It is a contested concept moving almost interchangeable between taking on the role as the text that is telling us something about how we define home and the physical space that creates real emotions of belonging. An attachment is simultaneously embedded in ideas of nature and culture, and it is contested for farming a particular selective view. The power of this concept of landscape is precisely in the way it serves to link a number of actual to, uh, things together in a geographical imagination of place, memory, I'd, memory. Besides the way things lumber things together in a geographical imagination, place, memory, identity and feelings of home, this is perhaps why landscape and the idea of national homeland have enduring relationship, creating stories of a particular sense of place, as Rose, using England and Englishness as an example. The search for a symbol of the nation thus turned to the countryside of the south of England, the soft hills, small villages around a green. Winding lanes and the church steeples of the English southern counties came to represent England and all the qualities that the cultural dominant class desired. The sense of place suggested that the relationship between humans and nature had reached a balance through the centuries. It was shown as a deeply historical landscape. Finally, this landscape was argued to stand for all England. It was this image which stood for the country as a whole. While the soft hills and village greens of southern England convey one's sense of home, the highlands of northern Scotland has most often been used to tell stories of that nation. These representations are based on images of mountains and wilderness, evoking a timeless and underchanging landscape. If there are living things represented in these idolised depictions, they are often 
solitary human figures or animals. As Jamie 2008 has argued though, these theoretically empty uh, places are contested, politicised for a long time. The wild land was a working place, whether you were a hunter, gatherer, a crofter, a miner. One of the most common evoked areas of Scottish landscape in these stories of home and national identity is the Carganon Mountains. While these have featured in a number of historical, literary and artistic depictions, their significance increased with the establishment of the Carganons as a national park in 2003. The campaign for this area to be granted such a status can be tracked back to an initial public campaign in the Scots magazine 1928. That was part of the irresistible push for the democratisation of the democratization of the Carganons as a recreational space for the nation. Lord Wimier, 2003, page 204, a key issue for this initial campaign, as part of the reason that it became so protracted, was that it changed the era's status as an aristocratic sporting retreat, and its sisters sought to establish claims to common ownership through the idea of national heritage. Lord Wimier, 2003, this too shows how power is contrasted in the efforts of competing stakeholders to remap the social and cultural meanings attached to the landscape of the Carganons. It's on page 141. Home, home in Scotland. Today the Carganons and the Highlands region but more broadly have come to represent a sense of homeland used extensively in reinforcing stories of Scottishness. As Mark and Matilde from Visit Scotland it shows like the soft hills of southern England, the landscape of the Scottish Highlands has many different stories of home attached to it. These stories can be read using geographical imagination, which entails asking questions about how power and equality attachment and identity are embedded in different and contested ideas of home. This section has explored historical development of landscape in identifying and symbolising the sense of national homeland and identity. It has considered that the idea of landscape is not just something that is seen, but is also a way of seeing that creates contested and selected views. Landscape is a powerful concept that links place, attachment, identity and sense of home. This chapter has been used home as means to explore a geographical way of understanding the world, space and place are central concepts to this perspective. As is the relationship between people and their environment, the idea of geographical imagination helps reveal the power relationships that underpin ideas about home and how homes are interconnected to other people, places, regions and institutions. Maps were used to visualise and explore these relationships and also highlighting that official representations present at a particular view of the world that can be contested. D. Assertu used the example of city planning. While Massey argued that globalisation, rather than being a natural phenomenon, has been generated and maintained by those with power, inequality between and within homes can be seen in the ge uh, geographies of uneven development that has left some much poorer than others. Inequality is a result of the lack of power and contemporary forms of inequality such as the difference in economic development between countries marked as part of the global north or global south. 
can have their origins of inequalities in the past. Migration creates new ideas about home as something that can be fluid and flexible rather than static and unchanging. The transactional professionals discussed in this chapter were able to recreate homes but also still feel attached to other places. Finally, the discussion on the representation of home as landscape highlights again at home not only consists of material objects and also evokes emotional attachment. Just as with the maps used to navigate borders, cities, countries and regions, power is evident in low depictions of landscapes can make invisible the reality of others who also call a place home. Chapter 5. This is the last chapter of Investigating Social World 1. There is another book, Investigating Social World 2, that is the start of next year, I believe. What do you think when you think about your homeland? It may often be your place of birth, or perhaps a nation or place where you live. These factual details about a homeland are also combined with emotional feelings, as you saw in the previous chapter. Loyalty to a nation is expressed in terms such as home, of the free. Such phrases are linked to political and social claims about a nation and can, and can inspire deep feelings of pride and belonging. This sense of a homeland suggests something bigger than a house as a home, but encompasses the territory of birth or residence. This chapter addresses the idea of home through our politics and an international relations approach. From this perspective, home and the homeland, the nation and also the state are also key source of feelings of belonging, as well as legal belonging. As disciplines, politics, international relations are primarily concerned with political institutions such as parliaments and processes such as elections and international relations conducted by a diplomacy or armed conflict. All these institutions are, and processes exist in nation states for the majority of people in the modern world. Their political home is the nation. Many people belong to a nation and for most it is where they were born. Through those Migration and diaspora can produce multiple sense of belonging, as you saw in the last chapter. Patriotism and nationalism are the loyalty, devotion and support for the nation. These emotional and political commitments can be most visible during international sporting events, where many people support and celebrate the success of their national teams and sporting players, and in times of war, where men and women are asked to fight and die for their nation in travelling abroad. There are frequent reminders of belonging to one state and not others as national boundaries are crossed and people are subject to international rules and regulations of migration. Travellers carry passports indicating their nationality and return home via passport control at a state of border. For many people there is a clear relationship between the state as a former political and institutional community and the nation. It's conflictual. They may have their ability to express themselves throughout a political or cultural belonging to a home or nation denied, or be in conflict, or be in conflict with the other majority or majority groups who have complete competing claims to the same home or symbols. Nations and the states in which they exist or form as part of our human constructions 
and not pre-existing entities. Political scientists are interested in the interplay among different entities in society, nations, states and the international institutions they interact with. This chapter looks at all of these issues, then exploring the politics of nation, state and nationalism. Section 1. What is a nation? Begins by looking at different ways of defining a nation and then moves on to analysing various ways in which a nation is symbolised in everyday life. Section 2 and the state explores the relationship between the nation and the state before looking at redefining of the national community in South Africa after the end of the apartheid regime. Section 3, all the nation claims equal includes a case of study of the Kurdish nation which does not have a national home state. What is a nation? Political theorists debate what constitutes a nation and how nationalist demands should be should understood. A nation is sometimes defined as a large group of people with some ethnic, cultural, linguistic and historical links and connections that enable them to be recognised as a distinct grouping. The rule, there will, however, be some people who are not part of the recognised group. Some theorists take the position that nations are modern constructions, while others argue that their origins are older. Gilner in 1983 considered nationalism as arising from the need of modern societies, considered nationalism as arising from the need of modern societies to be cultural, homogeneous, pre-industrial societies that could tolerate high degrees of variation including ethnic and linguistic diversity in Gellner's view. Pre-industrial societies with Karachal and communities lived with their local area, often while little knowledge the broader country in which they lived. By contrast, modern societies are more egalitarian, mobile and humongous. Nationalism arose out of the pressure and the social dislocation resulting from the Industrial Revolution. Hobsbawm, 1983, also argued that nationalism arose during the modern era. Broadly speaking, from 1989, the date of the French Revolution onwards, he viewed it was a process encouraged by the elites to legitimise the power amid economic change and the rise of democratic ideas. The states in their ruling class could find a national feeling a means of securing loyalty to a place or supplement traditional bonds such as loyalty to a ruler or religion. Nationalism in which this account therefore helped to stabilise elites during the Industrial Revolution and preserve them in the face of the democratic demands. Anderson 1983 portrays the modern nation as an imagined community. By imagined he means that there is an idea that a nation is based on sheer histories, outlooks, cultural values and manners that are held in common however. He argues that this, this nation feeling is entirely imagined and constructed through education, the mass media and political um, socialisation. From the late 18th century onwards, newspapers allow communities to be psychologically enlarged while journalists and novelists acted as the carriers of national ideas. Anderson therefore believes nationalism was entirely invented during the modern era and the national histories and traditions are imagined. Symbols such as flags, 
Sporting events are a good example of how individuals and groups can imagine being part of a wider collective when they wear team clothes and watch um, and watch celebrate or commiserate about national events. The opposition argued is that the nations are ancient rather than modern, and the national national histories are passed down through the generations for Smith, 1995. Nationalism builds up a pre-existing ties of kinship. Religions, other beliefs, ethnic groups or ethnies in Smith's terms are base are the base of nationalist identity. On, the t on these terms, Smith argues that these nations draw on traditions, real or mythical, a shared descent, history and culture. The perspective is termed to be primordial, view of nations, meaning they existed from the beginning. In contrast, modern nationalism were, was shaped over time by such factors as wars and the settlement of people by, by migration. What nations are and how they emerge are clearly subject to different definitions and claims. At a general level, a nation and nationalism can be characterised as a complex blend of culture, political and economic features. Economic deprivation or recession may lead to an increase in nation, nationalist tension, as, as, a, as can political or cultural events such as wars and celebrations, states in which different nations exist reveal how nationalist feel, feelings arise, how they become politicised and how they can lead to conflict. In Spain, for example, there have been um, repeated political demands, sometimes violent, for national self-determination. For the Catalan region and Basque country, in Northern Ireland, a combination of economic disparities between the Catholic and Protestant populations, territorial division between the North and South Ireland, and UK sovereignty over Northern Ireland led to competing nationalist demands and conflict. In the former Yugoslavia, the breakup of the communist state led to re-emergence of the nationalist ethnic and religious tensions, leading to a bitter civil war in the late 20th century and early 21st centuries. Write down the nation you consider to be your own. Answering these questions may appear self-evident and essay, but it involves making a set of personal and political decisions in order to identify which nation you feel most attached to. This is page 155. These decisions can be both politically significant and controversial. For example, Daniel, co-author of this chapter, was born in Wales but spent most of his childhood in England and a significant part of his adult life in South Africa. Which nation he calls home involves a number of personal decisions that have social and political significance. His mother was born in England but her family emigrated from Ireland to England. His father was born in Wales but last lived there when he was 18. His parents also lived in South Africa. He usually ticks the British box on questionnaires, but could identify himself as Welsh. Though he has no ongoing connection with Wales and often feels English, however, because of his research and biography, people occasionally presume he is South African. In South Africa, he could have chosen to adopt the dual nationality and the British national identity correspond with a much larger English-speaking white population in the country, some of whom remain very conscious of their British heritage. Along with the UK nationals, he could identify 
as a European, and that choice could politically be a statement of his commitment to the United Kingdom's membership of the European Union. Alternatively, rejecting the label would also be a political statement. In Scotland, Wales, England, Northern Ireland, claiming and proclaiming national identity, movements are arguing for specific forms of political settlements such as de uh, devolution within the UK, or for some independence from the UK. In addition, these movements have sought to develop, preserve and celebrate national culture and be identified as distinct from British identity. 1.1 Nationalist Politics of the Postbox how people, how people identify themselves with a particular national home and the politi political so, uh, significance of these choices is more than a matter of personal collective identities. There are many symbols and practices of nationalism often take for granted in everyday life such as symbols and practices of banal nationalism. Billig 1995 can and also unconsciously symbolise home and to help create collective national identity. It can also become divisive and vocal points for nationalist protests against the state. Um, two seconds, just want to outline something there for my... That's going to be for my essay. Absolutely very significant. Page 156. How many more pages is put together? Not many. Inequality of power about whose home it is. The study of symbols by social scientists is known as semiotics. Take a look at the figure 5.1, a red post box or pillar box used by UK Royal Mail. It is a familiar sight in the UK. If you never thought of this as something you associate with home or Britishness, consider how often iconic images of red post boxes appear on tourist souvenirs to represent the UK. Page 156. The postbox symbolises the legal authority of the British state, which either the crown or the royal cipher of the lead of the state, the monarch depicted on the side, yet it is the political symbolism that has led to nationalist conflict over postbox. When Elizabeth II 1926 was crowned in 1952, postbox began to be uh, produced with the royal cipher E2R on the side. E2R became the focus of Scottish nationalists who wanted to preserve distinct Scottish identity and reclaim independence from the UK. They argued that Elizabeth could not claim Elizabeth II of Scotland, but was Elizabeth I of Scotland. I might have knocked on the door in two seconds, I'd like to see the postman. This was because Elizabeth I, 1958-1601, had been Queen of England, not of Scotland, which at the time was an independent state. Postbox in Scotland were vandalised and even blown up, although the British state had the legal right to stole the Queen as Elizabeth II. The pillar box war, as it was dubbed by the media, led to the postbox office removing E2R from the side of the postbox in Scotland and replacing it with the Scottish Crown. Although the red postbox seems to be associated with home and is considered an aspect of British identity, the president of West Postbox across the world is Alexia, the British Empire, British colony. Let me check, see if that is from the door. Two seconds.
he's come up this way, so we'll be in a minute. But um, don't want to miss the doors of delivery and coming up to Christmas. Under the control of the British state, also had red post boxes with red world cipher. These can still be seen on the streets in places from Australia to Canada and from Singapore to South Africa. Now he's outside. Is that the end of is that the end of the road, so any moment now you can get knocked on the door. <laughs> These postbots have become sites of national controversy and protest because they are symbols of the British Cornwall rule, for example. With Southern Ireland become the independent Republic of Ireland in nineteen ninety two twenty two. Let me just make sure. It's been and gone. It's been and gone, ladies and gents. It's been and gone. He may well have knocked on the door. I was reading, so I didn't hear him, so never mind. Uh, the wall cipher was not removed, but the Irish state insignia was put alongside it. In Northern Ireland, red post boxes have been painted green by the Irish Republicans as a form of protest against British sovereignty over the territory of Northern Ireland. In Cyprus, red post boxes were painted yellow upon independence from the UK. And in Malta, the British war insignia were removed from post boxes by the independent Maltese government in the 1980s. So the familiar and seemingly anodine object of the red post boxes can be both a symbol of national home and an object that symbolised British state power. It can be seen as a divisive and unwelcome symbol for nationalist groups for which to contest and remove that power. Note down two or three national or nationalist symbols you have in your home or can readily see as in your community. Do you con consciously think about them? What personal and political responses do you have to them? For Matt, Carwell for this chapter, one obvious symbol is a British passport. Matt feels British identifying with this symbol and the opportunities that having British passport provides. Matt lives in London, so he uses the tube regularly, and the London transport system is a very easily identifiable symbol of home. Matt enjoys going to the pub for a pint of bitter with his friends. The pub or bar is perhaps a cliche for a symbol of Britain and Ireland, celebrated in popular culture on TV and postcards, although the pub is in decline. It still holds an important place with a collective consciousness of large parts of the British and Irish Irish publics. Looking at summary on page 160, the position and the symbols used can have a key role of emphasising particular nationalisms and deny, denying others. Symbols are often a focus point of conflict within the state between different nationalisms. The study of the role and the use of symbols in society by social scientists is known as semiotics. Ch um, to nations and state, the discussion of how people 
identify with one or more nations as a home and how everyday objects such as post boxes can symbolize that nation and focus for nationalists protest shows the issue of nationalism belonging and homeland are complicated the history of the modern world can from some perspective be considered that of history of different nations in organizational political terms it is the state that people and citizens are formally linked to however there are international transnational bodies that sit above the nation state such as the european union or the united nations these are actually organizations of independent states one of the founding principles of the un is that states have sovereign equality which as bromley 2009 says refers to the situation in which each state recognizes the legitimacy of others to govern and represent their territories and population as far as national order is concerned the number of states in the un increased from 51 in 1949 to 193 in 2014. The nation-state is broadly defined as a state in which there is a clear equivalence between the borders and characters of the political unit or the state of the culture and national community within it. Yet many, if not most, nation-states include groups who feel they are not part of the dominant national grouping and culture. One of the problems with many nation-states is that the key act of the basis that these groups do not exist and that their population is in fact one nation. Different national groupings within a state can require specific political considerations in order to fall part of it, so that competing nationalisms do not become the focus of political and sometimes violent conflict. In the UK context, some within the nationalism community in Northern Ireland will fit this definition of not feeling part of the UK nation-state. Defining the state state is one of the primary focus for the social science research you will have seen in previous chapters how a state plays a key role in regulating people's lives creating the condition for the ownership of homes or otherwise and defining borders and the means to cross them the state is the dominant form of political organization of the world's landmass it is the political home to which all of us belonging in a formal and legal crisis People are subject to its rules and requirements, must pay tax according to those rules and can be sanctioned and punished by the state if they break the law. These rules, regulations and responsibilities make up citizenship. Ultimately, the state claim is not just capacity but the right to employ force. The social and political theorist Max Weber define the state as a human community that successfully claims the monopoly of the legitimate use of physical force within a given territory, Weber 1970. The state can raise armies and direct them to fight external enemies as well as deploy them against threats from within the state's territory. When the state's monopoly of legitimate force is threatened, as a civil war, its very existence is, is at threat. As long as the conflict continues, there is no legitimate authority. The state is political community formed by a territorial population and is subject to one government. The distinction between state and government is that it includes the institutions and personal, such as civil servants and military, or governments come and go. According to the democratic process, where these are in place, the difference between state and government is symbolised by having a ceremonial president or monarch who is the leader of the state.
and a prime minister who directs political matters and is the head of government. Yet there are multiple exceptions to these definitions, for example. Overseas territories such as Gibraltar and New Caledonia are autonomous subject to the sovereignty rules and regulations of the British and French states, respectively. Many states are divided in ways that the grant sub-state entities varying levels of autonomy, such as the Special Administrative Region of Hong Kong, which is, has autonomous powers from China. The United States is an example of a federation in which the individual uh, states are particularly self-governing. Regional powers are devolved in places such as Catalonia and Basque Country in Spain and Iraq. Kurdistan in Iraq. The state shapes both everyday practice and social interconnections in a wide range of ways. Its reach extends far beyond the formal political institutions such as the parliaments and beyond the government-run services such as state schools, hospitals, prisons, border controls, social security, tax inspectors, pensions, nationalised industries and public transport. Key aspects of human ex existence and enabled and regulated by the state. The right to marry is sanctioned by the state. The age at which it is legally permissible to smoke tobacco, drink alcohol and have sex is defined and policed by the state. The registration of all births and deaths is required by the state and the state defines certain acceptable and unacceptable behaviours in family for example. Defining what constitutes child abuse and having the power to take children into care of the state. Relationship between people have the state have with the state is heavily influenced by many factors, including the political system. Everyday life is quite different in a democracy from an authoritarian non-democracy. There will be difference in the nature of the state's policies and laws between different demo uh, democratically elected governments. So the extent to which people feel they belong to and live in a territory that is their home and homeland is something that can be made more made or constructed by the state. Create a new rainbow nation in the state of South Africa. One example of the state that has attempted to embrace competing and conflictual nations to legitimise itself by making a homeland for all its citizens of the Republic of South Africa. During the transition to the democracy of the 1900s, one of the key aims of Nelson Mandela and the African National Congress was to create a state and nation that could include all racial groups, reconcile former enemies and build national symbols that united the diverse country, a rainbow nation. This involved a range of competing priorities. One was to include and accommodate the majority of black population whose expectation in the context of democratically elected government was to achieve parity over the time of other communities within South Africa. Another priority was to reassure the white community because as a South African academic Melissa Stein has written many in that community struggled to feel at home during the transition as they found it difficult to understand and accept their loss of race-based privilege. There is an acute sense of loss of, of the f uh, familiar, following the end of the apartheid, a loss of certainty, a loss of comfort, a loss of privilege, loss of well-known roles, a delusional home, 
has now collapsed. The new government national project to establish a new nation that would be a homeland for all involved, the creation of unified national symbols and images as part of a process legitimise a new state. This section goes on to explore how these symbols and everyday images are political and can become symbols of home or of alienation. National flags are key markers of national identity and not only symbolise but also generate nationalist feelings. Inevitably they reflect the history of identity of a nation state and they can become more contentious political symbols. This is apparent in the histories of the two flags of South Africa. Figure 5.6 was the flag of South Africa between 1928 and 1994 become a notorious symbol of the of South Africa. That flag was itself an attempt to reconcile and represent in different groups within the white population overcome the four histories. The colours of orange, white and blue were drawn from the Dutch flag and symbolised from the first Dutch settlers to the country in the 17th century. The three flags in the centre represent British colonial control of South Africa and the former Africana, the descendants of the first Dutch settlers, Republic of the Orange Free State and the South African and a South African Republic. In the late 19th century, they, there had been a war between the British and Afrikaners, the Boer War. Resulting is the defendant of the Afrikaner Republics, the amalgamation of the Boer Republics into the United South Africa and the British Empire. The humanitarian is of the defeat, is of the defeat led to growing nationalist uh, feeling in the Afrikaner community and demand for a new national flag to be designed. One that visually asserted the rights of Afrikaners in South Africa and to contest or remove British influence and control. When the Afrikaner National Party won office in the 1920s, they set about creating a new flag and figure. Clearly indicates that Afrikaner identity was more important in the flag of the British identity. Although British involvement in their country's history and politics was acknowledged, black South Africans are not represented at all in this flag, reflecting their marginalisation. Unsurprisingly, designing a new flag was one of the prime tasks during the transition from the white majority. The rule of multicultural democracy after Nelson Mandela was released from prison in 1990. One of the key figures in the apartheid movement, Mandela has been in prison since 1962 for crimes against the apartheid regime in South Africa. As the first democratic elections approached, the state herald, the official responsible for all symbols and regular for South Africa, was asked to design a flag that reflected the country's history and its different groups. Figure 5.7 shows the new flag that was unveiled in 1994 with the green, gold and black. The colours of the ANC, the political party that had been banned for much of the apartheid period and that represented the views and demands of the black majority for the non-racist democratic state. The colours blue-red symbolise both the colours of the British Union flag and the colours of the Africana, South African Republic and Dutch tricolour flag. The flag therefore continued to symbolise history of the country and draw from the elements of the old flag. The black and white colours of the flag symbolise the main population groups in the country and that in the new democracy will be a home to all racial groups. The new flag has proved to be a popular uh, national symbol 
ubiquitous across the country and among South Africans across the world. It is displayed at the sports matches on products and on national airlines, for example. Yet the old flag also sometimes appears to sporting matches in certain communities. In display remains politically provocative and offensive to many, symbolising a state that excluded the majority of the population on racial grounds. The display of the old flag has been interpreted as a sign of, of some white South Africans alienation from and hostility towards the new non-racial South African state, the new South African flag, like the old one, sought to help to create and symbolise new South African nation, albeit one that could be inclusive and a home to all its racial and ethnic groups. Like flags, national anthems can provoke strong awareness of national feelings belonging to patriotism. However, the national anthem can be also become politically controversial. Spain's national anthem, the Marcia Real, for example, has no lyrics in it. It is therefore not possible to sing it, officially at least. There are two main reasons for, the f the for this. First, the lyrics, the anthem, once ha had, were associated with the f uh, fascist regime of General Franco and were abandoned at the country because of a democracy in the 1970s. The second, new lyrics were not written because there are regional and linguistic divides in Spain. Namely, the Basque, Catalan and uh, Galician groups who have their own unofficial national anthems. The, Sp the Spanish state has yet to force or negotiate a political acceptable set of lyrics. In South Africa, the anthem, like a flag, had been the focus of political contestation and compromise. When South Africa was colony in the anthem, it was the British national anthem. The growth of Afrikaner nationalism and the National Party winning office meant the replacement of this, of this anthem, with one that reflected Afrikaner history. The music and lyrics were thus replaced with diastem by a sued Africa. The core of South Africa was Sung in an African language in 1994, the new government was faced with a dilemma of what to replace this anthem with. The African National Congress had its own official anthem. A 19th century hymn called Kosi Sikeli, by Africa, Lord Bless Africa, which was sung as a party and protest meeting in the 1920s onwards. As with the country's new flag, President So, new flag. President Mandela decided to compromise by both Diastem, by Suid, Africa, and Nkosi Sikel, our Africa, become official national anthem in 1994. But these two anthems were shortened and incorporated into a new anthem in 1997 titled Koja Sikel, I Africa. The first and second verses and music are from the ANC's anthem, but are sung in three of the official languages of South Africa rather than just in ex Oceania. The third verse is from Diastem, as is the music, and is sung in Africans. The final verse, sung in English, was written to express the new nation's desire to be inclusive and democratic. The new national anthem seeks to convey the political nature of the South African state. If you look at Table 5.1, you can see its different verses reflect 
to different racial ethnic and linguistic groups in a country and its different components are a focus of deeply held political and emotional feeling. In section one, you'll read about meaning and use of symbols include or exclude citizens or having a sense of homeland. Why do you think symbols such as flag, anthem, stamps and coins expressing belonging to a nation homeland? Are there any symbols that make you feel part of, of or separate from a homeland? For Matt, the Union flag symbolises his Britishness, although he is conscious that the flag only represents three of the four parts of the United Kingdom, England, Scotland and Northern Ireland. Representation of Northern Ireland is problematic because St Patrick's uh, Saltire is meant to represent the whole of Ireland, not Northern Ireland, but has continued to be on the Union flag despite Erie becoming a separate state. There is no Welsh representation on the Union flag because when the flag was created in the early 19th century, Wales was deemed to be part of England and represented by a flag of St George. The anthem from the UK is God Save the Queen or God Save the King if there is a male monarch. Broadly speaking, Matt is happy with limited income constitutionally embedded monarch but would prefer the words of national anthem for the UK to be more focused on the citizens than its head of state. The national flag and the anthem are common symbols of a nation but even the money of a nation state express national identification, coins, banknotes and stamps symbolise a nation and can become politically controversial if certain groups in society feel under or misrepresented in the UK, the currency is sought to embrace and accommodate the different national groups such as the national plans or emblems of England. While Scotland and Northern Ireland with their over, overall British sovereignty symbolised by the Queen on its banknotes and coins. In the attachment to these symbols you might also see the connection where the desire by some in the UK retain the pound rather than in their dot the euro. Returning to example, South Africa, the country's currency has been the, uh, the Rand since 1961. During the party, the national symbol of the currency were the protein flower, the springbok, deer and jarn van Rybeck, the Dutch colonial official who led the first settlement of Europeans of the country in the 17th century. Formed a key part of the Afrikaner claim to control South Africa in 1904 and Rybeck was removed from one from notes and replaced with political neutral animals and industrial symbols where coins were gradually replaced with ones showing the new national coat of arms. Patriotic display of the national symbols such as flags and wearing national colours is also evident during international sporting events such as events of resulting emotions are important in gem generating and sustaining national feeling and belonging to a, to a home. 1995, the newly democratic South Africa hosted the Rugby World Cup. Sport itself is a source of inequality and rugby has been sacked the game primarily associated with white Africans. One of the most pigeon moments from the World Cup is when President Mandela handed a cup to Fra uh, Francus Pioneer, captain of the South African national rugby team. Whilst wearing the green or orange Springbrook jersey, many commentators consider it to be a defining moment of the nation building a new country. The picture of Mandela and the pioneer points a symbolic 
overcome a bitter massive division based on ethnicity, history and politics. In 2010, South Africa hosted the FIFA World Cup for the first African country to do so. Football has traditionally had much larger following in the country's black community than in the white population. It had played and supported rugby and cricket more widely. It was thinking, however, how the matches and celebration outside stadiums including South African of all racial groups. The South Africans' successful hosting of FIFA World Cup was a source of great national pride. In the country, a further proof of the success, successful process of building a new nation. I'll bet one still heavily unequal along racial lines. Page 171. During this process of transformation in South Africa, it is moved from being a part of each state to a multi-ethnic nation. Much of the work that went on civil society and political process was accomplished by South Africans. However, the transformative process was an international one alone, and external pressure was brought to bear to achieve specific aims. These pressures were at different levels from global social movements boycotting South African products and countries bordering South Africa offering military support to ANC guerrillas and international bodies such as the UN opposing part feed. The racial inequality on which the white South African state was based was widely opposed to internationally. However, not all nationalist demand from a homeland are as successful. The, pro the process by which individual national groups and na nations are able to successfully make claims to a political role within a state, create a state of their own, or even express a cultural or political identity within a homeland, and are uneven and unequal. They are subject to wide interest and wider and power relationships within the international system and point to the role of power and inequality in who can successfully achieve nationhood. This will be explored further in section 3, focus on the case of the Kurds. States are often the sites of conflict between different groups who make claim to the state as their homeland. Symbolised images and rituals can become the focus for tension and conflict that arise from these competing claims. Symbols and practice can be a source of either political or cultural alienation or deterioration, depending on the way they have created and used within a state. Thank you all. We've got a few more pages to go. Um, we're finishing on page 172.